You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 74, Maternal Health Disparities with Dr. Jasmine Johnson. Listen as I talk to Jasmine, who is an amazing researcher, physician, and mom, all about her journey and her passion. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition, while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. I'm so excited to have you here, and I am so excited for this episode. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with Jasmine. Jazz is a fabulous, fabulous human being, physician, mom, blogger, social media maven, all of the things. So Jasmine and I trained together. I was in fellowship, and she was in residency at UNC. So it's really interesting that you get to meet and have relationships with somebody in real life and then that relationship gets to grow through social media she was on social media way before me back at a time when i wasn't even thinking about being on social and watching how she's grown and developed and used her own story as vulnerable as it may be at times to really impact others that is so inspiring to me Jasmine completed her undergraduate from the University of Michigan. She went to medical school at Indiana University School of Medicine, and she completed residency at UNC, and now she's a maternal fetal medicine fellow at UNC, which for those of you who don't know, that's one of the top programs in the country. So she's pretty amazing, just FYI. In addition to all of that stuff, she has a blog called The Mrs. The Mommy The MD, And she serves on the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, which is the big society for MFM, on the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee. And she's co-chair of the Diversity Task Force for the Department of OBGYN at UNC. Her research interests include health disparities within the OB population, quality improvement to reduce maternal mortality and morbidity. And she's pretty much had some really incredible publications including one in the big journal. It's called the Green Journal for OBGYN, which was about racial and ethnic inequities in postpartum pain evaluation and management that was published in December. That's a huge accomplishment, especially during fellowship. That's huge, guys. Go, Jasmine, go. She is a fierce advocate for the Black community and for Black women. And what you're about to listen to is nothing short of a love fest because I am so, so impressed by her. And I remember operating in the middle of the night with her and to see how she is developing professionally. She's flat out amazing. So can't wait for you guys to listen. Here we go. Hi, guys. So I am so, so honored to have Dr. Jasmine Johnson on right now. And you guys just heard her bio and how fabulous she is. But I've known, I've been so lucky. I've known Jasmine for a really long time. We both have training roots at UNC. I was doing my fellowship in REI when Jasmine was a resident in OBGYN, and now she's an MFM fellow there. And so we have personal experience, which always makes the online connection even better. But she was on social media way before me. She was like one of the OGs. But Jasmine, thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you and catch up. And it, I'm super excited and proud of you and everything that you've done at UNC and after, so. Ah, you're the best. And forever, I'm gonna put this right here before we dive in. So we are doing a Instagram takeover in a big group and Jasmine will be taking over mine too. So if you listen to this in real time and you wanna even hear or learn or see more, then you're gonna wanna follow that. And of course, we have all of Jasmine's social handles we'll go over at the beginning and the end of this. But Jasmine, tell me, let's just start by, how did you get into medicine? What was your journey? What led you to kind of that point where we first met? So I am the child of a physician. So my dad's a urologist. And so my like early memories of hanging out with my father was going with him on Saturday mornings to round. Um, and he would sit me in the nurse's station or in the doctor's lounge. And I would eat those saltine crackers that we now all eat on call. <laughs> and I just, you know, was enamored with like the whole experience. But what really made an impression on me was my my dad would go into a patient's room and while he was gone, you know, the nurses or his colleagues, the other physicians would say, you know, your dad is such a great doctor. His, his patients love him. He makes such an impression. He makes everyone feel well cared for and he's a great clinician. And, and you know, as a little girl, it's really cool to hear people talk about your dad like that. Um, but as I got older, my mom says that like when his medical journals, his surgical journals would come in the mail, she would like flip them over because she's really squeamish. And then she would find me like reading them in the corner. You couldn't help yourself. but I like, couldn't help myself. Yeah. And so medicine always had this pull on me. Um, and then when I got to college, same thing. I went to college knowing that I wanted to go into medicine. I had no clue what I wanted to do. Wasn't sure about urology, but was considering it. Um, and I kind of dove into the social justice scene at Michigan. And that's when I really got introduced to public health and realizing that like a lot of the things that we were talking about and protesting for on campus related to like education and access to certain services, it bled into healthcare. And so I was like, well, this is cool. I don't know how I'm going to gel that Blend with it. what, yeah, how I'm going to gel that with. And now thinking about it, public health is everywhere in what we do, but you know, I was a college student. I had no idea. And, um, and so then while I'm on that little path, I had a surprise college baby. So my son, Nate, he's a, he, he's 11 now. And I always joke, I had a lot of fun in college, ended up with a kid. <laughs> you had so much fun. You ended up with a, with a college baby. Yes, from it. yes. And so that really like threw my world upside down because, you know, before um, what social media is now, women, even though they were doing this for years and years and years, you know, we didn't know, we weren't talking about it. They were in the trenches and the struggle and no one was like posting, hey guys, you can make it, you can do this. Oh, so for sure. And the message, I mean, I'm older than you, but the message was a hundred percent, you will have to wait on your family until you right. get through with your training. The idea of you can do both, which you've done really, really gracefully, Thank you. was not one, it wasn't public knowledge and it wasn't what people were telling you. You know, people on rounds or that you would see would say, are you sure you want to do this? You're not going to have kids. You're not going to be there for them. You're not going to be a good mom. That's the message I at least got. And I feel like yeah. the tide is changing as we are kind of putting ourselves out there. But what was your initial feeling? I mean, did you have some of those doubts about what's my future going to look like when that happened? Well, so many. So, you know, going back to how my parents, I watched my dad go through residency during my early childhood and my mom was a single parent. She raised four kids and she was like, we're still going to have kids. We're still going to do things that made, 
made her feel like we should be doing as a family at that time. But my dad was not there. <laughs> so, yeah, so, he was a resident. We know what residency yeah, like. Yeah. Bye. And so, right. <laughs> see, see you in six years. And so um, that was my frame of reference. And that was my parents' frame of reference because they also lived that. And so all they knew was to tell me like, look, this is going to be hard, if not impossible. Um, and, and it was devastating because there wasn't anyone around me to encourage me until I went to my first OBGYN visit. And my doctor was phenomenal. She um, not only treated my pregnancy, but she also was like my therapist. And oh, that every, so good. every visit I left feeling encouraged and like I could do it. Um, and there were a number of little events in that, you know, even though women going through medicine with a family weren't like in the forefront around me, people I knew connected me with women who were doing it. One one who was an OBGYN resident at the time and she had um, had a very similar experience at Michigan where she went into medical school with a child. And so even though I didn't really have a plan mapped out, I was like, look, if I get to medical school and see these women flourishing, doing and living the life that I thought was impossible, I, you know, I just would be devastated if I didn't continue to power on. And so, um, so that's, that was kind of my college to medical school. I'm trajectory. so proud. I'm just interrupting you to say, I'm so proud yeah. of you. Like that's such a oh, mature mindset. I mean, I think in college we feel like we're mature, but like looking back there, we we're so young at that stage. And so to really, you know, I mean, not that you weren't prioritizing your family because you were, but to prioritize your dreams and say, you know, I'm not going to give up on this yet. I want to keep pushing and what a lovely I mean just what an amazing role model that must be for Nate you know to kind of well, have watched you go through all this thank you and you know now I can package it into this wonderful story but it was a hot <laughs> mess getting from point A to B and and I you know I tell people especially because I've spoken on this before um you know what what I what brought me to social media is when I had that positive pregnancy test, I literally went to Google and I said, can you go to medical school and have a baby? And and like there were blogs about like crafting and being a mom and like doing all these other random things and being a mom. And there weren't any sites for mothers who were in professional school. And I was like, you know what? Like there there is a space here that needs to be because women have been doing this. And so we need to show women coming after us that you can do this. Yeah. Why be silent any longer about it? Because, you know, everybody always says you can't, you can't be one if you can't see one, right? You sometimes need to see that person doing something that maybe somebody else is telling you that's impossible to really believe it inside your own self that you can do it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm presuming that your OBGYN, who sounds amazing, is part of what sparked a little interest in OB for you. Am I, is that true? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So she sparked interest, but you know, going back to what we thought about the field of medicine, OB has a really bad rep for Ooh, family man, and we're lifestyle. Mean, girl. <laughs> yes, yes. And and it was a male-dominated field, and so people weren't talking about quality of life or any type of work-life balance or integration. And so she definitely sparked my early interest, but I kind of like put it in the back of my mind, like, yeah, that's great, this is wonderful, but probably not going to be. For me, since I have this kid, you work too hard. <laughs> you don't have time. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so when I went to medical school, um, I actually enjoyed a lot of my rotations. I really, you know, aside from really, really super extreme long surgeries and really, really super extreme rounding, like I really loved like 
internal medicine, family medicine, neurology. I loved general surgery. I was on ped surgery, um, and, but OB was my last rotation of my clinical year. And it was like, my people, I'm here. It was a mix of everything that I loved about medicine. And, you know, of course, um, ushering in new life is wonderful, but I also really loved maternal fetal medicine where I rotated because it's like clinical medicine mixed with OB. And so I get to do a lot of care of women that come into pregnancy with complex medical conditions and babies with complex medical conditions. And I don't know how familiar your listeners are with maternal fetal medicine, but it's a subspecialty of OBGYN. So it's a fellowship that's three years after your OBGYN residency. And we specialize in ultrasound for diagnosis and procedures. And we also specialize in like the medical complexities that can affect pregnancy um, with the mom and the baby. So in short, total badass. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I mean, MFM is such an amazing field. I mean, not only, I mean, you complete physiology and experts for both mom and baby and, you know, your favorite organ, probably the placenta, that organ so you good. love to hate. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's so impressive, you know, and it, I mean, you train, you're, I mean, you're training at one of the best places. I mean, UNC has a phenomenal awesome. MFM program and I love hearing your story, you know, in this side of things, because it's such a good place for health advocacy. And, and that maybe wasn't anything that necessarily drew, drove you there, but it has allowed you to really combine some of your passions together. And I think when you're able to find that fit where you are interested in the physiology and the patient population, and you're passionate about it, that's, what's going to make your whole career fulfilling, no matter what the work-life balance, I would say you can figure that stuff out. You can work as much or as little as you want when you're done with training. You can make that look how you want. You really can. And yes, daunting training. I'm sure some people, like they say to me, they're listening right here and they're like doing the math and they're like, wait, that means four years of med school, four years of OBGYN, three years of MFM. You know, how old are you when you're done? And the thing I always say, and I'm sure you're going to say similar is, you're going to get old anyway. You might as well spend your time making a difference and doing something that really, really inspires you. Otherwise, it's never worth leaving your kids for. I mean, that's my perspective, right? Exactly. That's exactly what I tell people too. The time's going to pass regardless. You hit the nail on the head. And, And speaking to the the people that are looking towards medical school or professional school, you know, what convinced me that OBGYN was going to be okay was that when I was on my rotation, I mean, I probably looked crazy, but anybody that I like heard had a glimmer of like children or a hopeful like family life or had good integration of their like personal life and professional life, I would like corner them and be like, tell me how you do it. Do you have a nanny? Do you live around your family? Like, what are you doing for childcare? Who's taking your kids to school? Just to like get an idea. And it's exactly that, you know, even within OBGYN, everyone makes their job experience what they want it to be. There's so much flexibility and that's kind of the blessing of being in medicine and that it's not one size fits all. And whatever is your priority, you can prioritize, you know, and there's some give and take, but you definitely can prioritize what you want. One thing that I loved about doing my fellowship at UNC was that I was able to get my MSCR, which is the Master's of Science in Clinical Research. And you're doing that right now too, right? Well, I'm taking classes. I'm not getting my MSCR. Oh, you're smarter. Honestly, well, I had, it's so funny because, and this just goes back to, you don't have to know what you want to do from the beginning and that I really did not see myself being a 
career researcher. Like I thought I would get my experience in research and fellowship and then, you know, take what I've learned, but see you later. I'm just going to be a clinical person because I just absolutely love the clinical aspect of everything. But honestly, after doing fellowship, like I've decided that when I start looking for my real job, I'm going to get some research time. Or I want to at least. Um, yeah. And so and so now I'm like, oh, should I got that MSCR? But I don't know. We'll see. Maybe well, later. the classes, <laughs> mostly it's um statistics. Somehow I realized yeah. I had made it through all these years of education and not really understood statistics. And and then, me. oh my gosh, like how did they let us skate through? And it changed my whole perspective of how I looked at like journal articles, like research papers and being able to critically analyze them. Because if you are gonna pick a field of medicine, I mean, all fields change, but especially in women's health, I think, you know, there hasn't been enough research previously. So we're kind of yeah. trying to catch up on it, but in your field and mine, we find new things all the time. People are always right. looking for ways to kind of do things better to change, you know, in infertility and in maternal and fetal health, like new stuff is coming up. You have to stay on top of it. You have to know what is good and what is bad when it comes to studies. And this is what I tell people all the time, because you know, I love my infertility community, but man, my patients, they will hunt on PubMed and try to find an article. And I yeah. love it, but I would say <laughs> you can find an article on anything you want. You can, and you can find the same art, an article by a leading expert that says two different things because one is a prelim mm -hmm. study and then one is the RCT that shows you something different. So you right. have to know how to evaluate that type of literature, but I'm so impressed and I feel very maternal, even though I don't really think I have the right to, <laughs> to say like, you know, like you're gonna change the world and I'm oh, so thank you. Proud. And it, may, it inspires me to hear you say that you're going to keep doing research in some capacity because your research is really changing the game and people's Thank lives. You. And I think that also I'm going to circle it back and we're going to talk about your research. You don't have to have your whole life planned out at any given point. You know, you can make different decisions. You can have road bumps. You can take a new path. And it's totally fine to say, I thought this is what I wanted, but now that I'm here, I want something else. And so exactly. that's often like not ingrained in us because in medicine, we're such perfectionists. We kind of feel like we have to have the whole plan and fulfilling it in the way that we thought it had to be was what was important. So exactly. And also when you have it all planned out, I feel like you, when things don't go as expected, for example, if you have an unplanned pregnancy, you <laughs> you mourn that plan that you had. And so, you know, five, 10 years down the line, I saw this quote and people are probably familiar with this too, but you have to be stubborn about your goals, but flexible about your efforts. And so, you know, I knew medicine was for me and I couldn't see myself doing anything else, but it wasn't gonna look like what everybody's path to medicine looked like. And that was another thing that isn't really publicized when you're going through it, everyone went college, medical school, you know, residency, but some people do college Peace Corps medical school residency. Some people do college, got a job, went to medical school residency, did a post back, like whatever. And and that's not said enough because a lot of people think, oh, well, everyone went straight through. No, actually I didn't get into medical school the first time. And I did a year of a post back and then I got in and that was okay. A lot of people did that, but we don't talk about it. And so absolutely. You don't have to have it all. I love that so much. One that we, and not just us, and not I mean not just us in medicine, but overall people mm -hmm. and women. I'm gonna categorize this all together. Don't like to talk about our failures because right. we feel like it is going to discredit us in our success. 
and you know I'm that way too but I have found that talking about these things that you did fail on or the places where you needed more help or the, mm-hmm. that's okay and that actually you help more people by being honest and vulnerable exactly you know? And so there's probably somebody who will listen who just heard that you didn't get into med school the first time you applied, who didn't get into med school the first time they applied and is considering, should I give up on this dream? You know, and then they see, oh, look at Jasmine changing the world. No, you can't give up on the dream. You know, please don't. Different (laughs) path to get there. And that experience, I mean, I have failed or changed direction lots of times. Like I did an ER internship before I went to OBGYN. So I was very similar. I heard, OB is so hard and work-life balance and you can't be a mom and have a family and do all these things. And I let that carry way too much weight in what I chose. Mm-hmm. And then when I realized ER wasn't right for me, I, you know, switched. And obviously this is like the perfect fit for me and I'm very happy, but you know, people will always say things. Oh, there were so many more fun things you could have done for that year. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Right. But you can't make decisions based on fear a failing or based on what other people may think because it's your life and those are your goals so you've got to figure yeah. out a way to try to make it happen um i'm so proud of you thank you i'm proud of you too uh, <laughs> now we're just super super sappy so everybody's listening to be like man these i know Um, Let's dive in. So you said you're going to be looking for academic jobs, which is going to be like fabulous. Are you starting your second, your last year fellowship now? Third year, last year fellowship. I'm so happy. Oh my my God. So good. Where? So tell me about um, MFM fellowship. Like how much is research? How much is clinical? We get 18 months of dedicated research time, but it's like broken up. So our second year of fellowship is primarily our research year. So that was where I had the most uninterrupted time. And then I have five months of research time this year. Um, and I had like three or four, um, whatever's it added up to 18 in the first year. Yeah. Yes. I am um, felt like that research time was the first time in my career where I was like, took a breath because you're just yeah. like pounding through and then exactly. suddenly suddenly you have a time to be like, what am I really, what am I going to do with this time? What, how am I going to try to study? So how did you, so all your research, if people don't know, which I'm sure they all do by now is in maternal health disparities, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So tell me about how, obviously you had some public health interest from your time back at Michigan. And I know Mm -hmm. you do a lot of advocacy with ACOG and other things, but tell me about how did you really kind of get into this aspect of research? So um, during residency, you know, you're required to have a research project, at least our program is, and most most OBGYN residency programs are. Not at Parkland, we're a little too busy. Oh, really? Yeah, y'all are are busy. (laughs) But UNC, (laughs) I love UNC's residency program. You know, I felt like, I'll I'll interrupt you real quick. When I came Mm -hmm. as a fellow, I was like, people get to train as residents like this? Like, you have an emphasis on education and research. Not that I'm dissing Parkland because I loved my training there, but it was just really different. So I think you chose really well because you went to a residency place that really supported you in where you wanted to go. So yeah, you had to do a residency and, research project. Yeah. And, and rewinding to that, I feel like you have so many good, good pearls that I want to like enter in. Um, I went to a residency program that I felt represented all of the fellowships because I wasn't really sure what I, what fellowship I wanted to do. I loved MFM and I was like, I probably am going to do this, but I don't know about REI and I don't know about MIGS and I don't know about ONC. So um, having a program that had everyone represented and a good research focus um, and then also just 
I don't know, we were like, if we don't get out of the Midwest now, we're never leaving. And so <laughs> that's how we ended up in North Carolina um, and we've loved it. But yeah, so I did my residency research project on maternal mortality and morbidity at UNC. So um, now we hear all about maternal mortality in the news, but before it really got a lot of notoriety, um, we weren't doing these things called maternal mortality review committees. And that's essentially a multidisciplinary team that looks at any maternal death that happens in a state or institution, wherever this committee is, and looks at the factors related to the death. Um, and if it was related to you know patient factors, provider factors, community factors. And we did not have one of those at UNC. Believe it or not, this huge institution that has a very diverse patient population. And you know, I went into it not expecting necessarily for it to be a disparities issue. But what we uncovered is that, you know, black women um, made up about 18% of our obstetric population, but they actually were about 30% percent of our severe morbidity. So when you think about maternal mortality, that's a maternal death, which is a rare outcome, but it's a devastating outcome. And it's something that our country needs to work on. And then there's something called maternal morbidity, which is like a near miss event. So something like a bad hemorrhage or something related to a hypertension complication. Like a where severe the lump, complication, right? Right, right. So the patient doesn't die, but something terrible happens and it complicates her, her course. And so we looked at our hospital system over the last five years before this project. And, and it was really um, informational for the department because we hadn't looked at it before. And we were able to look at what our top five causes of maternal morbidity and mortality were, and also what the disparities look like. Um, and for us, we really needed to work on postpartum hemorrhage. And so to put numbers to that and the causes of hemorrhage, it just, you know, you think everyone's doing the best they can for their job and no one goes to work wanting to do harm. But seeing the numbers and where we could do better really moved the needle. And we actually formed a maternal morbidity and mortality committee after my project. And so that was like, oh, wow, like I can do research and it can make people do things. Like yeah, that was my first <laughs> that project. I mean, like, seriously, this is eye opening. This is what people I, I was the same way. I went through med school and like didn't do any research. And research kind of has this reputation of being a stagnant thing, but it's very dynamic. Here is one project you did as a resident that has probably saved the life of a woman because a committee was formed, probably multiple women, but if something happened, like a committee was formed, uh, things were evaluated to try to figure out why this was happening at a higher than normal rate. And then especially why this disparity exists and then solutions starting to be formed. And that's just because of one idea that you kind of worked with and, you know, worked with mentors on and developed that has, I mean, probably one, it changed the whole course of your career, but two, has Absolutely. true impacts for women. How did it feel? I'm, this is really personal, so I'll delete it out if you don't want to answer it. But <laughs> <laughs> how, um, how did it feel as a black female physician to look at those numbers and see that black women were having severe outcomes and dying at a higher rate from complications than white women? It, it makes me angry every time I see the statistic. And I think that we are in this bubble when we are like in the professional realm and we've, you know, gone through education for so long. Society has kind of conditioned us that like you're, you're, you're safer when you're around more resources. But what we have found is that black women that have the same amount of resources as white women or women of other races do 
much worse um, and sometimes worse than white women that don't have the same resources that like a college educated black woman can have. And so for me, it's personal. Um, it also, you know, makes me worry for my family, my friends um, and my patients. You know, my first year of fellowship, this young black woman who I just was in triage for a labor check was like, Dr. Johnson, I'm so scared to have my baby because I feel like I'm going to die. Something bad is gonna happen to me. And how do you, how do, do you, you console someone? Exactly, what can you say? Because there's no data to support that she's not gonna die. Cause honestly, like there's, you know, we, I think what has come out of this um, is that we have been talking in medicine about race being a risk factor for things, race being a risk factor for, you know, I don't know, heart attack or stroke. I don't, I'm just throwing that out there. But what we have switched in our in our nomenclature, or what we're calling it, is race is not the risk factor. Racism is exactly and the reason why we're seeing these disparities in outcomes. Isn't because there's something biologically different about me being black compared to someone that's white. It's that the experience of black women or black people in society or anyone in an underrepresented minority um, puts, you know, this intangible stress that we're, we're studying now and weathering. And then also just like the racism and the societal and structural racism in the community that then impacts how they access healthcare, or how they interface with the healthcare system and everywhere else, it all matters. So let's dive into t to two of these things that you were kind of saying. So let's do the first one mm -hmm. is that is weathering, because I think there's probably some of my audience who isn't really familiar with this idea and doesn't really understand what that means. So why don't you kind of explain why, how weathering to, you know, a black person could put them at a higher risk from chronic, you know, stress and other things. Mm -hmm. Well, so weathering is like a fancy term for chronic stress. And so when you think about the stress that you endure in life, so for example, like thinking about your patient population, going through infertility and infertility treatments is so stressful. And there is a component of weathering there. So when you think about weathering and, and just being black in America, the stress of turning on the news and seeing another black person killed, the stress of being chosen, not chosen for a job over someone else with equal qualifications, but a different color. The stress of maybe not having access to good schools for your kids because of the history of redlining and creating these black communities and white communities that are funded by taxpayer dollars. So the black communities inherently have, you know, the homes that aren't as valuable, but also don't have the schools that are funded well. And so all of that, you know, we're trying to figure out how to quantify that in research, but it can lead to inflammation in the body and just like chronic, um, sympathetic nerve system activation. So that flight or flight response, if you're always like feeling like your adrenaline is going, you're always feeling like you just have to go, go, go to survive. We think that that has some implications in the body long-term. So, you know, baseline blood pressure, baseline heart rate. And so how that transfers to like obstetrical care, we think about like hypertension and pregnancy and black women having higher rates of preeclampsia um, and higher rates of stroke related to preeclampsia and black women having higher rates of gestational diabetes and all of those things. You know, we're trying to figure out what what the cause is. And so now we're looking at these things like weathering that we hadn't considered before and how that brings higher risk to a pregnancy just by your lived experience. I 
think I love that you tied in infertility because I do think that that is a very similar experience. The infertility community always says pregnancy didn't cure my infertility, meaning mm -hmm. they carry that trauma with them and they have a very different experience. The other thing you mentioned, well, I'm gonna go over a few things, but one is that you said, you know, you had a patient your first year asking you about essentially like, is she safe? And yeah. I've had patients within the past year, black women who have asked me, you know, in consult, is it safe for me to be pregnant? Will I die giving birth to this baby? And that's a very, you know, hard place to be because this kind of second cause you talked about is just inherent racism of different causes. But I do think part of it may be provider, you know, bias, even not meaningful, right? So not, mm -hmm. it's that whole difference of the difference of, you know, being, you know, anti-racist, right? Like you have to actively be aware of certain things, but I feel like that has been, you know, shown or theorized and you can elaborate on it to be a reason why mm -hmm. black women may bleed more after, you know, childbirth. As you said, it's not that something physiologically is wrong with them. Are they not getting the same level of attention as the white patient? Are they not given the same resources in the hospital system? I mean, what do you say to that? Exactly, exactly. And um, we have to have these conversations because learners, clinicians walk away from their experience. Like, for example, um, we had a a device system rep come to our hospital and make a statement that was not correct in saying that black women, or he asked if our, our black population was higher because we had such higher hemorrhage rates than what he had seen. And, and that right there is like, you know, maybe he didn't mean that coming from a place of racism, but that was a racist statement in that that was not a medically sound statement and that perpetuates that belief when people are sitting around hearing a doctor say something like that especially students and so um speaking to that as well you know besides hemorrhage there is a study floating around now the internet but it was done in like 2016 where they asked um i think medical residents or nursing students in healthcare, if they felt that there were biologic differences in the way that black and white people felt pain. And it was they like did. an overwhelming- People yes. thought there's a difference. Yes. It's crazy. They, and, they, and, they, and they tried to, um, I guess, uh, prove their, their belief by giving some like scientific reason that had no basis in things like thicker skin and like different viscosity of blood. And, and it's, it blows my mind, but you know, I did a study at UNC where we looked at our um, women who have had routine post-C-section care on the postpartum unit. And we found that black women had higher pain scores. They had um, less frequent assessments of their pain and they were given less non-narcotic and narcotic pain medicine for the same procedure compared to white women. And no one on our units is not giving black women medication intentionally. At least that's yeah. what my heart believes. But there's some bias, some unconscious thing going on where black women aren't getting the same number of nursing assessments. They're not going into the room. And unfortunately, 
Um, you know, our study came out in the Green Journal in December and Northwestern published the same study in the Green Journal. So we had two big centers that have diverse populations, you know, sound research-based, evidence-based practices that had the same result. And so we can't pretend like this isn't happening and you're not safe just because you're at an academic center. You know, I think we try to point fingers at smaller hospitals, but like, no, it's it's happening everywhere and, and we have to call attention to it so we can fix it. I really think this means if you are a provider of any sort, taking care of black women, you know, I mean, any population that is, you know, at higher risk for, you know, complications, essentially, you can't, you need to pay attention to that and you need to treat them differently about it. It's not about, you know, this whole, let's be colorblind and not see the difference. You actually need to see the difference and do something right. different. If I'm exactly. a nurse with a black woman after C-section, maybe I need to check on her extra because her risks are higher than my white patient. And that's not exactly. what anybody has taught you nobody's even talked about it because it's been such a weird thing in society to even talk about you don't want to step on toes but so yeah. it's we actually need to see these differences and and do different things about them don't you think absolutely and and i think that you know the medical field as a whole like everyone is strapped for resources nurses have too many patients per nurse like you know we are given 15 minutes to see a patient with complex issues and so it can feel like a burden when we talk about checking on patients more or heightening our awareness but like it's a life or death situation for some um and it um through my work in advocacy i've um I've met Charles Johnson, which I don't know if you're familiar with his story, but he is actually Judge Hatchett's son. Um, and he and his wife, Kira, were going in for a routine repeat C-section um, in Los Angeles. And it was a scheduled case. She was a healthy patient. He talks about how she ran marathons and basically postpartum the eight hours postpartum, she bled out into her belly. And um, they asked for someone to come check on her. There was blood in her Foley catheter. She started to lose consciousness. And he was told by one of the nurses, sir, your wife is not a priority right now. Oh my gosh, it's heartbreaking. And they took her back to the OR after they realized she had a hemoperitoneum or blood in her belly. And she coded on the table and died at 30, 34 years old. She's very, very young. And that should not have happened. And it makes us all ask the question, could the outcome have been changed if she was white? Would she have been a priority then? And I think she would have been. And I think that as Black people in America, we run this like fine line of we need to advocate for ourselves, but we don't want to be characterized as aggressive or an angry Black woman or in, in Charles's case, an angry Black man who's a threat. Um, and and if we don't advocate for ourselves, terrible this is what things happens. can happen. Yeah. Right, terrible things can happen. And so what do we do? And so I think that that's what makes what's happening now with all of the advocacy that everyone is kind of getting involved in is that we need more than just black people speaking up for black people. We need, we need the providers to get educated and start talking about it amongst themselves. And we need white people as allies and accomplices in that they are actively working anti-racist work so that we can finally move the needle on this. 
because black people have been talking about this forever and and so we need everybody else to get on board you're like get on board people <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, let's dispel a few myths and then i want to get into some action steps you think people can do before we wrap up mm-hmm. so you know when you have a large social media platform you know as you do as as i do you know, anything you say is open for interpretation, which is fine. I think we just got to know if you're going to put it out there, you're going to stand behind it. And no, you're not going to make everybody happy. But yeah. one thing I heard posting thing about things about, you know, Black Lives Matter or Black maternal health or disparities was that as a white woman, I was trying to steal the thunder from Black women. And I took it as well, you're wrong and I'm right because actually black women are, are asking us to use our voices too because we're all stronger together. But so exactly. if anybody's listening who maybe has heard that or feels that way, maybe they feel like, well, I haven't experienced this so I shouldn't speak out because I'm afraid I'm going to do something wrong. What do you want to say to them? Well, I think that it's better to do it and make a mistake and learn from that mistake than to do nothing. Silence is complicit or being complicit. And so um, I I quote Martin Luther King all the time, but it's like, we're gonna, it's like a paraphrase of Martin Luther King, but when it's all said and done, we're gonna look back, not on the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And I think that if you look around your circle and it's not very diverse, then you have a responsibility to speak out because where else are your friends going to hear about things like this? Because anyone can look at their feed and we've been saying diversify your feed so that you can get other other, perspectives. um, Perspectives, exactly. But if if you are a white woman with white friends or a homogenous group with homogenous friends, like we need you because you are our, you are our way in to get other people talking about this. And so it's not so much that you are stealing the thunder of someone, but you can amplify voices through speaking out. You can say, hey, like this is not my expertise, but this is so-and-so's expertise. Go check out Rachel Cargyle's website. She explains things so eloquently. Even me, you know, I can talk about things from a maternal fetal medicine perspective, but there's so many great things from a social science standpoint that I just continue to repost other people's stuff because I'm not an expert and they say it much better than I do. And I am a person who works smarter, not harder. There's no need for you to like come up with these dissertations. (laughs) Come up with these dissertations when people have pictures and infographics and videos. And so I say, you know, I commend anyone who's willing to be brave enough to say something that goes against the grain of what maybe their their small group's belief system is, because that's going to be how we change hearts and minds. And I think that's how we actually start planting the seed of saving lives because if we for too long we've acted like a problem at least i'll say we as the white community have acted like a problem didn't exist and you as the black community have been telling screaming at us that there's a huge problem and we've been like in a bubble and i think by talking about things you know with our kids and our families and our peer groups and our parents and that's how we start to realize that this silence kills people. You know, it is exactly. silence is acceptance. And so we have to, you can't take better care of the black woman after birth if you're not talking about the fact that she's at higher risk. So exactly. Um, what about from a local, like a individual perspective? Okay. So mm-hmm. I think everybody's been all over social media and you've been a huge advocate of giving people resources to go, you know, educate yourself. Here's books to read, documentaries to watch and these type of things. But what other tidbits of advice do you have? So diversify your feed, educate mm-hmm. yourself, amplify voices. 
what else do you want to say to a listener who feels compelled to kind of take a stand or do something? Yeah, so I think our voice in the elections is really important. So, you know, regardless of what you believe, human this is a human's rights issue this isn't a partisan issue black lives matter isn't about what party you support maternal health and maternal mortality and moving the needle there isn't a partisan issue and so educating yourself on your local elections because i think we take for granted how important the local elections are and and the elections in between the presidential elections and so making sure that you know what candidates to vote for that are supporting the causes that you stand for and, and that they're on the right side of history and then also just speaking up like we said before speaking up when you see something that's not right or when you hear something within your friend group cir- circles you know in your home that just doesn't sound right say hey what do you mean by that and there are ways to be upstanders and not bystanders so that means not just watching it happen but being being part of the change to make sure that someone realizes oh Maybe that wasn't, maybe that's not what I meant, but it definitely wasn't what I should have said. And like, maybe I need to figure out um, how, to, how to articulate my thoughts better and educate myself better. So uh, I think I think those are so powerful. And I want to just say, I'm taking your own story, but going to give it in a short little way. <laughs> it was extremely impactful for me. So we had a pinnacle call and I'll kind of end it with this where we were talking about like a town hall on racism for women in medicine. And you spoke about the story you mentioned earlier where a device rep came and kind of made just a comment about how black women, there must be more black women because you have more bleeders as if there's something physiologically wrong with black women that causes them Mm -hmm. to bleed more. And nobody in the room where you were in grand rounds contradicted him. Nobody said that that was racist. Nobody said, that that shouldn't be brought up and that one that that was so hurtful for you to sit there in the room with these colleagues and professional people who didn't say anything but also how comments like that integrate into the medical community and to the learners because they may not realize here's this respectful person and they can make a comment they're going to take that and then when they answer the survey about do black women bleed more? Do black women feel pain right. differently? They're they're going to actually treat people differently because of that. And so I think it does tell us one, it is the things you say and the actions you take are very important, not just on an individual level, but on what they're telling society. And two, doing nothing is doing something. You are choosing exactly. a side. Yes. And so people who were in that room with you and who love you and care about you, you know, Mm -hmm. and they let this racist comment go on and didn't stand up for anything. And that one impacted you personally and probably professionally, but two, that they all took a side that day. And that's probably Mm -hmm. what really hurt the most. Not that this guy said it. I mean, that's, that's, that's anger, you know, but but this, like you said, the silence of your friends. So I just think that that's important for us, not just to individually be aware and make, you know, motions to try to be better, but also to call out the acts of racism we see and demand better from the people we're around. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I think we're going to have to get off because this has been forever long and everybody's going to love it so much. Um, (laughs) I can't thank you enough for coming on here. I know this is both your, you know, your life's calling and work. You're going to do such amazing things and I'm honored to call you a friend and a colleague and I love watching your journey. 
Um, I can't wait to see all that's coming up from it. I want to say that I'm constantly inspired by how you use your own vulnerabilities and you're not afraid to speak your own truths. And I think that's what really makes your story and your voice resonate with so many people. So that's not an easy thing. So great job. Why don't you tell everybody where they can follow you on all the social media places? Yeah. So you can find my blog at mrsmommymd.com. And then my Instagram has the same handle at Mrs. Mommy MD. And my Twitter is Jasmine R. Johnson. I'm trying to make it more academic. For <laughs> how long, how long have you had this blog for? Just last question. Um, I started it the week I started med school. So that would have been 2010. So we're going oh on 10 God. years. Yeah. It's like you, like you and Danielle Jones were like some of the first like medical yeah. blogs, right? She, she was one of the few moms that were tweeting about before Instagram, she's tweeting about being a resident and having those twins. I know. <laughs> <And> I was- <laughs> you girls are inspiring, putting it out there. Well, I just want to say I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you, you for spending your time and for sharing your wisdom and your voice and your words with us. So much love. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. Friends, thank you so much for listening. I think you probably love Jasmine as much as I do now. Go and follow her on social media at the Mrs. Mommy MD. And you will see if you're following my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD that on July 22nd, we're doing a takeover where Jasmine's going to be sharing even more about her story and things she's passionate about on my account. I hope you enjoyed this. And what I really want to say is thank you, Jasmine, for being so open and vulnerable with us. And if I was listening to this without knowing you, you would have said something that probably changed my life. And I really hope there's people who are listening who understand that you do not have to give up your dreams and that you can change the world. Those are very real and tangible things. And Jasmine is a living, breathing example of that. Thank you guys so much for all your support of this podcast. I can never thank you enough for helping one of my own dreams and passions become a reality. Thank you guys.